Well, this morning, um, some of the themes, some of the things that were going on, you saw Jesus uh, performing this miracle that was a demonstration of what was going to be the real resurrection that he provided in his own death and resurrection. And in this demonstration, you saw his mercy and his power and his love in the raising of Lazarus. And you remember that the passage ended with unbind him and let him go. So some of that theme is what we're going to explore a little bit more as we look at um, this passage from Hebrews chapter 2. So I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." One of the ways um, true greatness is described, and I'm hoping that some of what we do tonight is think about the true greatness of Christ. And I think you really see this um, often in the book of Hebrews, is talking about how great Christ is. One of the things about true greatness is when you see someone who combines in whatever discipline this person is great in, he combines seemingly opposite traits in the same person. So what would this be, for instance, in, in golf? You think about someone who, could, who can crush the drives 340, 300 and whatever yards, but can also make that putt. And I'm not talking about the six foot, 10 foot putt. I'm talking about, if you, you who watch golf, the putts that are, you know, that have to go from up, from a low shelf up to an upper shelf and then down to where the hole is, and the putt looks something like this. It goes, and gets real slow, almost stops, and then it starts going again, and then just before it stops, pink, right in the hole. Have you ever seen those putts? They're, they do these things all the time. Don't they? I mean, they like the, to them, that's like free throw shooting. So that's greatness, that the power and the detail and the feel and the finesse. What we see in Christ is obviously way, way beyond that because we're dealing with a, a greatness and a combination of traits which really is only theologically described as the incarnation and a combination of his divinity and his humanity, but they're in such incredible contrast that when we contemplate them, we can't but be in awe in the context here, the author of Hebrews has just been arguing for the whole first chapter that the divine son, Jesus as the divine son, is superior to all. But then he introduces the idea, but that 
he was humbled for a time. And he's giving reasons at this point of why it makes sense, why it had to be that he would be humbled. But I think it's good for us to hear, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a few of the verses from the first chapter and leading up to this, so that you can get a sense of where he's been and the contrast of where he's going. In 2.10, he had said this, it is fitting that he... And listen to this description, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now the he here is God, probably the father in view, but note then what, it is, what is said of the son in chapter one. In chapter one, it says this of the son, verses two and three. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Exact imprint of his nature. Those of you who were in adult Sunday school this morning, you remember one of the quotes that, that Brent gave Um, I took issue with one of the quotes. One of the quotes said that man in the image of God is is a, what was the, the, a faint image. Use the word faint, a faint picture, faint reflection. I don't think so. I wouldn't use the word faint. Analogous, yes, but not faint. Because Jesus, the human, is said to be the exact imprint of the Father's nature. It is analogous, what is true in humanity is true humanly and points us to what is true in the deity, but it's not inaccurate. It's accurate, perfectly accurate analogy, perfectly trustworthy. In chapter one, verse 10, it says, the uh, the writer quotes the psalm, He quotes this psalm saying, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The significance is that the writer is saying this of the son. He's saying of the son, the psalmist says this. And he puts in the word Lord there because in the psalm, the whole psalm is repeatedly using the name Yahweh, Jehovah. So the writer of Hebrews is basically saying this psalm that we all know is a psalm to Jehovah, to Yahweh, this is a psalm that is to the Son. It's to Jesus. Um, Philip Hughes has a commentary on Hebrews, and um, just a couple quotes I want to read about that particular quotation from Philip Hughes. In the opening section of the epistle, our author has already declared that it was the Son through whom the world was created and by whose word of power the universe is sustained. He now applies to him the words which another psalmist addressed to the Lord, Yahweh, in a manner fully consonant with the Christology of the New Testament. 
It is through apparently incidental and unlabored designations of this kind that the apostolic doctrine of the Trinity falls into place. What is he saying there? He's saying the author of Hebrews doesn't make fanfare of this. He doesn't explain his logic. He doesn't say, now, I know that this psalm is written to the Lord, Jehovah, but I'm going to apply it to the Son. He just nonchalantly, as if no one has any objection, quotes the psalm and says, as if you know, well, see, this is what is said to the Son, and attributes to him things that they would know are attributed to God himself. It's astounding. But it's on the heels of making those points that the author of Hebrews starts to talk about his being humbled and his suffering and his dying. Now that's the biggest combination of contrasting ideas and traits that you can imagine. Not only being God and being taking on humanity, but being God in all of power, creating everything and becoming humanity and suffering and dying. And he's saying, I'm going to explain to you why that makes sense and why that is greatness. So he gives these reasons of why this has to happen. It's to destroy the one who has the power of death, to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, and to become a merciful and faithful high priest. So let's just think about each of these. To destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now destroy here, you may say, well, the devil's still around, isn't he? I mean, is, is the devil gone? This word here for destroy means to render inoperative. It doesn't mean to, um, it doesn't mean to sink a ship. It means to so damage a ship that it can't do, it's not, it's worthless in battle and possibly doesn't even have an engine, just sits in the water. So the idea is that there's the, the ability to function, the ability to do harm is removed the poison is removed. The sting of death is removed. The sting, in this case, the power of the one who holds the power of death. So the sting of the devil. Power. That word here is also very interesting. It's often translated either might or dominion. It's used 12 other times in the New Testament, and every time it's referring to God. Every time. It's saying things like, um, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, in their thoughts of their hearts. The strength was that word. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's that word. From Ephesians, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And that's the word. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And then there's several doxologies where the word dominion is the translation. To him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. To him, Christ, be the dominion forever and ever. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And in Revelation, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might or dominion forever. So this, is, this word power is the kind of power that, that someone has if they are God. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Apart from the work of Christ, the devil has that kind of godlike power over us. He rules over us like a mighty God has dominion over us. And his main weapon, the ace up his sleeve, is death. It's through that weapon that he wields dominion, godlike dominion, over this world. Jesus loads that weapon with blanks. He became human and suffered and died to load that weapon with blanks. And in so doing, to render inoperative this godlike, powerful being is completely ineffective in what he tries to do now because of the work of Christ. Of course, the, the corollary of destroying the, the one who holds the power of death or the might of death is to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To deliver is, is to release. It's to remove a condition that is holding someone captive. And I want to focus especially on the idea of lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. You see, the fear of death is not just something that we deal with when we're in the hospital bed, chains, uh, having our last breaths. The fear of death is something that, apart from Christ, is lifelong, a lifelong slavery. In Isaiah 25, it's described as the sheet that covers all peoples. It covers them all the time, from the time they're born. How is this slavery? How does it affect your life every day if you know that at the end everything becomes nothing or you don't know what happens? Now I want you to, for this exercise, step out of all that we assume as Christians who have this hope and let yourself think what would it be like if you did not have the hope that we have? What would it be like if you did not grieve as those who have no hope, but if you, in fact, had no hope? How would that be slavery? How would this devil have a godlike power over you? In my um, dissertation research, I was doing a dissertation on concupiscence, which is a big Latin word for disordered desire, which is... Um, something that has to do with all of our sin, every way that we sin. And when I was doing my dissertation, there were a few medieval writers who would say, well, what is, what is the, the deepest dynamic of concupiscence? Why do we have disordered desire? Why does any of this happen? And they curiously would say, well, it's because of the fear of death. And... I really didn't quite understand that. And I've been thinking a little bit more about it as I was working on this sermon. 
And I think more and more it makes sense. How does that make sense that that fear of death would be that which changes all the ways that we desire and everything about the way we live? First of all, think of the purposelessness that it gives you. If death is the end, if you have no hope beyond it, think of the purposelessness, an overarching sense of senselessness, really. There's a certain smallness to life, a vacuousness or an emptiness. In the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. If under the sun is everything that we have, it's vanity, it's worthless, it's a striving after the wind. Everyone ends up in the same place. Jim Collins is a writer of business management books, and a few decades ago, wrote a book called Built to Last. Built to Last was a study of several companies that he said achieved iconic greatness, long-lasting, you know, the kind of names of companies that everybody knew, and he wanted to research and find out, how did they do this? What is characteristic about these companies? And one of the things that he found in his research is that all these truly great companies were driven not, first of all, by profit and making money. They were driven first by a grand vision or ideology that shaped the founding of the company and the whole culture of the company. It was something bigger. So his example was uh, one of his companies he, he studied was Merck, a pharmaceutical company. And Merck had as its core value um, curing diseases and helping humanity. And one of the things they did is they, on that basis, they developed a... Um, they developed a cure for river blindness, which is a, a, a blinding parasitic disease that affected people in regions of the world where it was third world undeveloped regions where nobody had any money. Merck developed this thinking, well, maybe some government will at least cover our costs to do it, but it doesn't matter whether they do or not because this is our vision. We want, we want to help people. And it turned out no government came forward to help them. So they gave all of these away for free and virtually wiped out river blindness because that was part of their vision. They made great decisions. Profit was only the necessity that they had to keep, to keep being able to fulfill their vision. Now imagine if you lived life, if you apply this to your life, and you have no grand ideology, you have nothing outside this life, your, your main purpose is daily profit, just to do what will give you the most pleasure, to make sure you maximize pleasure in this life without anything outside of you. Do you see how that makes your, your vision small? It makes you like those companies that are just focused on just make money now, and they don't last. If this life is all there is, it lends itself to an eat, drink, and be merry mentality. For tomorrow we die. And we always harp on uh, John Lennon's song, Imagine. 
when he says, imagine all the people living for today, I think, we don't have to imagine that. Turn on the news. Pull up the feed. This is people, all the people living for today. It means living without vision, living small-minded, living morally small-minded for themselves with no willingness to suffer for something greater. This, uh, this idea of a, of a small horizon and how it, it kind of contracts you, I felt this this week. Um, my family has AT&T. Those of you who have AT&T, you know what happened. Um, first, my daughter says, on my way to school, Dad, there's something wrong with my phone. There's something wrong with my phone. <laughs> it says SOS. It says SOS. What does that mean? Um, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it for the day. I'll, I'll take it over to AT&T and get it, get it fixed if I can't reboot it and fix it. So I was on my way to AT&T, and I saw on my phone, SOS. Ah, this is not just her phone. There's something with our account. So I get home, and Deb says SOS. I get to the office, and Jill's is on SOS. And apparently, Brent's is on SOS because we can't reach him. I'm like, what's going on? So I pull up the news, and I see this headline, this ominous headline, um, cell phone outages across the whole country, you know, et cetera. They're, they're saying it in the tens of thousands, but I'm thinking, no, this is millions and millions. And what happened? Immediately, okay, so Deb was at that time in a car on the way to central Ohio to visit a friend. My daughter was at her school. I was in the office. Cell phones expand our horizon. Cell phones enable us to be comfortable with our family members being that far apart and moving in different directions physically, but because I know I can contact them, I'm fine with it. As soon as I knew that the cell phone connection was gone, I had one desire, bring them all back. I want to go to school and get Abby and have her next to me. I want to get somehow, I want Deb to come and we're going to all go home and we're going to huddle down home and wait for the invasion to happen. (laughs) But you see, there's this, without without the, the cell phones to expand my horizon, everything started to close in and I was protective and selfish and just wanted to shut down. Now again, apply that to the slavery, the lifelong slavery of living without any expansion of your horizon into the new heavens and the new earth and all the hope that we have. And what do you have? That life just turns in and and you just want to keep everything close and you want to hold on to whatever you have and you don't want to lose anything and you, you become protective and selfish, not daring and loving and risk taking for God. And then there's an accelerating desperation. Bob actually um, used, Bob Brimmer used this illustration. I I don't remember what you were illustrating, but you used the vacation illustration in the lunch we had, um, you know, when we were all practicing for, for sabbatical, talking about the Harans behind their back and enjoying it. But the vacation effect of this, this accelerating desperation where 
you're excited to go on the vacation, but the first day of the vacation, you realize it started to end. And by the second or third day, you really can't even enjoy yourself because you know in about six or seven days you have to drive back. And the closer you get, every day you get through your vacation, you enjoy it less and less until it's desperately miserable and you just leave a day early just to get it over with. (laughs) Did you ever think that life, life without hope, life when you have when you're living in the fear of death with no hope of anything beyond, all of life has that effect. You can distract yourself a little bit when you're young. There's a lot of um, perception of strength and vitality and you have things that, you know, when you're really young, you don't even think you've started life yet. You think, I'm, gonna, I'm preparing for life. But then as soon as you get out of college and you have a job and you suddenly realize, well, I'm not preparing anymore. I'm living life. That's when you start thinking, now I'm preparing for death. Oh, no. And the older you get, the more desperate that becomes. That is slavery. That is what we are delivered from. That is awesome. That is awesome. Finally, to become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, there's faithful and merciful. And I want to um, say that, that faithful is connected with making propitiation. What is What does a faithful high priest do? A faithful high priest does what a high priest is supposed to do. And a high priest, the priest is supposed to stand between the people and God and remove the problem. Make God propitious towards us. If you're propitious towards someone, you're you're thinking well, you're, you're... You're kind, you're well disposed towards someone, you're you're propitious towards them. A priest's job is to make sure that God is propitious towards us, and he does that faithfully, meaning we can trust it. We can trust it. He reliably pays the price because he was human and died for us. He reliably makes propitiation. And then merciful Merciful is connected with verse 18 of being able to help us with our temptations. Why do we need a faithful and sympathetic high priest? Because just like the fear of death without Christ is a lifelong thing, If he gives us this great vision, if he gives us this grand hope that frees us from it, it also is lifelong. It needs to be lifelong. It's not just about after you die. It affects you in the here and now. And the truth is that in the here and now, we still suffer and we still sin. So all of what he's done, delivering us from the power of the devil, just like that power was lifelong, the deliverance is lifelong, and that means today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday. And it means whether you are struggling, whether you're suffering because of your own sin and your struggle with sin, in which case he is a sympathetic high priest 
who is able to help you with it, or whether you're suffering because of the fallenness of this world and bad things that happen and opposition that happens, which is all basically feeling your encroaching death, feeling the, the, the death that still exists moving towards you in all of the unpleasantness of this world, whether it's disease, disaster, or just mean people, in which case, in every case, his deliverance reaches you in the here and now. And if it's your own sin that you're struggling against, it reaches you in the here and now because you can trust that he has made God propitious towards you through his sacrifice. So all this to say, what a great Savior. How much do we have to be thankful for that he has, he who created all things would become like us in every way, take on human nature and suffer these things, showing true greatness, divinity, and suffering humanity for the purpose of delivering us from him who had the power of death, delivering us from our sin, and helping us in our suffering and temptation. Let's be filled with thanksgiving for him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, how we love you, how we are filled with gratitude and awe you truly are unique, truly, completely unique. There is none like you, holding such power and divinity and yet humbling yourself to such an extent so that we no longer are enslaved to the fear of death all our lives. Thank you. Amen.